This is the E-Commerce Brain Trust, a podcast about building momentum online for established consumer brands. Join our hosts and their expert guests for high-level conversations about e-commerce strategies, trends, and innovations. Access our Brain Trust and boost your brand's e-commerce potential. Hello, and welcome back to the E-Commerce Brain Trust podcast. I'm your host, Kiri Masters from Bobsled Marketing. And today I'm joined by Ross Derringer, who is the founder of Stratably, a company dedicated to elevating the digital IQ of leading consumer brands. Each week, Ross creates impactful, practical, and easy to digest research that speaks to all layers of an organization, helping them to see further around the corner of what's coming in retail. Welcome to the show, Ross. Hi, Kiri. Great to be here. Yeah, I would just say I wish I turned the recorder on about 20 minutes ago when we first started talking because it's been an interesting conversation so far, but we we had to get down to business eventually and start talking about the topic on the agenda today, which is FBA aggregators. And I came across a presentation that you did recently on this topic and wanted to reach out and dig right into this. It's something that's very interesting to me. And before we jump in, I'd like to hear what made you interested in diving in. Yeah, it's just been a really kind of interesting development in the Amazon ecosystem. And for me personally, what I found really interesting about it was that it was this intersection of e-commerce and capital markets. And it really fit kind of my career experience. I started kind of in the investment world and then I migrated over to the e-commerce world. And so it was just this combination of those two things. And so I started to dig into it more. And, you know, a lot of these aggregators, I felt like had a really smart take on the market and it was capital markets coming in to this ecosystem and really validating how powerful of a future that Amazon and and e-commerce more broadly has. So I just feel like it's, you know, really important part of the ecosystem today. I think it has staying power in some form, which we'll talk about later. But that's kind of why I got interested in it to begin with. Mm. Well, before we jump in, there's so many things I want to speak with you about, but let's first define the term aggregators for the audience. Yeah. So I think of aggregators as these companies that have raised hundreds of millions, billions of dollars to acquire third-party marketplace sellers, essentially refine the operations of those sellers and integrate them into a bigger organization so that they can ultimately drive more value out of this bigger company. So it's sort of this arbitrage play of taking and rolling up these smaller sellers into a, a bigger company, providing them more capital, providing them you know, perhaps more expertise in some respects, and giving you know many of these kind of small, medium businesses opportunity to exit the business at a, at a great multiple for them. So that's aggregators. And then you have you know other parts of the market, like what's now being called accelerators. Accelerators are companies that essentially will buy the inventory of certain brands and then act as their kind of authorized seller on Amazon's marketplace and other marketplaces. So they're not acquiring the brands them the actual company, the brands, but they're just acquiring the inventory and selling. And so you have aggregators, you have accelerators. I would broaden the definition of accelerators to include all of the service providers and agencies that help 
companies with their Amazon and, and digital businesses as well. And so then there's this debate of like, who's going to win? Is it going to be the aggregators or the accelerators that are going to ultimately win? And, you know, we can talk about that, but I think they're playing a little bit of a, a little bit of a different game, you know, so to speak. So I don't think it's just one for one competition. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So each week or so I read news about an aggregator reaching a major milestone in terms of capital events. And certainly every week I'm getting pitched by aggregators who are looking for PR or looking to buy a brand. And then I'm also hearing about my employees are getting pitched all the time too to to run off and join an aggregator with sometimes pretty wild incentive packages because the aggregators, they have so much cash available. So I'm curious to get your perspective, especially as a former analyst, are investors pumping too much money into these aggregators? So I think that's the initial reaction anytime kind of a new part of an ecosystem forms. We're seeing the same thing happen, same reaction happen with instant grocers, <laughs> where a lot of capital is coming into that space. But with aggregators, you know, at this point, I think around 10 billion plus of debt and equity has been raised. And even when I did the presentation you referenced back in mid-October, since then, there's been new announcements. I think Thrasio raised another billion dollars. Razor Group raised $125 million at a billion-dollar valuation. Elevate Brands raised $55 million. So new capital continues to flow into the space. And the reason why that's happening is because of the multiple arbitrage that still is available. So yes, it has gotten much more competitive for these aggregators to find good sellers. Multiples in that marketplace have gone up. So maybe you were getting one-time revenue, you know, a couple of years ago, if you were a seller, now you're getting, you know, three times or four times or five times revenue. So in that sense, like, wow, a lot of capital has come in. However, for these aggregators, the value comes in bundling all of these different sellers together into a bigger company. And the multiple for the aggregator is several times higher than the individual marketplace seller. So until that multiple difference gets arbitraged away, you're going to continue to see you know, more capital come into the market. And it's all types of different capital too. And so I'll give you a couple of examples. One of my friends in the industry, he has probably a decade or so of experience on Amazon and other digital accounts. And he called me one day saying, hey, I've gotten in touch with a few small private individual investors and thinking about you know, possibly buying a few smaller brands and like what the aggregators are doing. You know, What do you think about that? So that's one spectrum. And then the other spectrum, I talked to one of the largest growth investors in the world that is you know, looking at the space and continues to see an opportunity in the space. So I think you, we've seen a lot of capital come in. I think we're going to continue to see more capital come in despite it becoming more competitive to acquire these brands because that multiple arbitrage still exists. And Thrasio and some of the others are talking about, hey, we're trying to build the modern CPG brand. And no one really has defined exactly what that means. But if you were to look at, you know, an Allbirds or a Warby Parker or some of these companies, which aren't exactly comparable. So I don't want to mislead listeners. I mean, it's not exactly comparable, but whatever a modern CPG company ultimately ends up looking like, 
that multiple is even, even bigger. So that difference still exists. And so that difference is going to continue to drive more capital in the space. And I think that's why I feel confident that while not every aggregator that has raised money is going to survive and thrive over the next year or a couple of years, I think several will. And I think the dynamic around aggregators is here to stay. Mm. Yeah, I think it's become, there's an argument that's I've seen play out on Twitter a few times from some people sort of defending more traditional brands, I guess, talking about the the business model of of aggregators and laying out a case that it's not a secure business model. And so I'll break down the key argument and I'd love to hear what your take on it is. One is aggregators aren't immune to the same supply chain pressures that everyone else is is facing. So that is they're not immune there. B, the brands that the aggregators are purchasing may be of low quality or at least undifferentiated, and that is certainly more likely to be the case as we go along and there's less and less deals and more aggregators fighting over the scraps potentially. So that's another argument. And then C is that actually integrating these brands and getting that those synergies is more challenging than than the people running these aggregators might understand. So I'd love to hear what, you know, you must hear these kind of arguments all the time. Curious to hear what you have to say. Yeah. So I think on the supply chain, you know, issues, that is definitely true that they're not immune, you know, to, to Oh, sorry. That. There's one, every- sorry. There's one more. Sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. so one more is, this is an interesting one. There's a house of cards situation where major investors can't afford for, the aggregators to go under. So they're essentially propping them up with a capital gravy train. I think that's the most sort of personal argument. Okay. (laughs) So I think the supply chain pressures are very real. I think that's a dynamic that every consumer brand, retailer, aggregator, accelerator, et cetera, has to deal with. I know you've, on your podcast, have talked about that issue and it is a a real issue and it's certainly going to impact companies this holiday quarter and likely to extend, you know, throughout the balance of 2022 seems to be what most companies are expecting. So I think that is definitely a real risk for the aggregators. I don't think it's a unique risk necessarily to them versus others, but it is a real risk. The concept that they're acquiring sort of undifferentiated or or low quality brands, I think there is some of that going on. There is a contrarian take to that, though, which is that it's like a feature, not a bug. And what I mean by that is you, if you're acquiring a less differentiated brand or seller, you're probably been attracted to them because they do have sales momentum. And so is there an opportunity to actually build that brand given you have sales Momentum, And so what I mean by that is historically, you would start a a brand and just try to bootstrap it and do grassroots marketing and try to get any traction in order to get distribution. But now with the advent of marketplaces and the low barriers to entry that allows kind of anyone to, to sell an item, maybe it's shifting where now you first focus on let's launch on Amazon's marketplace. Let's get sales momentum. 
maybe we're, you know, really good at just optimizing for that algorithm, or we just fit a super great niche on the marketplace. And, you know, maybe we're not, we don't have like a brand name today, but can the aggregators find sort of those companies and then develop an expertise around building actual brands out of them? So if you acquire that type of seller, you're going to get them cheaper compared to, you know, a seller that has a realist kind of established brand, if you follow me. And so I think if you start to see the aggregators hiring individuals with like great brand building experience, you know, that's part of the strategy. So that's why I say like that might be actually a feature rather than a bug. Now, with the caveat, it's not just easy to build brands. So there is that <laughs> that caveat, but that's the opportunity. Wave right? magic so, wand. Yeah. Right, right. So, but look, I mean, there's got to be risk in order to get returns. So, so that's how I'd answer that. I think the integration question is, or challenge to aggregators is absolutely true. I think that's going to separate the winners from losers in the space. I mean, you can't just acquire tens and hundreds of different sellers and just like easily integrate them. And so I think the aggregators that are developing kind of the most effective integration operation are going to separate. Otherwise, it's going to be a total mess. So I think that's going to cause some to have to exit because they just don't don't become excellent at that. So I view that as a key investment risk. And I think for investors that are putting more money, incremental funds into existing aggregators, that's probably one of the key things that they're looking at is like, let's do our due diligence around how they're integrating these sellers. You know, what happens in the first month, first three months, first six months from an operational perspective and from a performance perspective relative to the category. So I agree that 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 is a real challenge. The house of cards around pumping more money into it, I guess, you know, that's possible. You know, if you're an investor, you've made an investment into a company and, you know, here you are a few months later or a year later, and it's maybe not going great, but the best decision, the best incremental investment decision you can make is to actually put more money into it. That is, you know, possibly going on with some of the aggregators, but I think a counterpoint to that would be that you do see new companies coming in and investing for the first time in the space. And I'm talking like big, sophisticated, you know, investment firms. And so I suppose if all you see, you know, if if we, here we are in November of 21, you know, midway through 2022, if all we're seeing at that point are the same investors putting money in, I think then that sort of hypothesis that they're propping these companies up is true. But as long as we continue to see fresh investors come in, it's probably, you know, less true, put it that way. Yep. Got it. One stat that I saw really interesting from your report was that aggregators have one staff member for every 2.5 million in revenue. And I'm curious how that sort of differs to incumbent brands in your experience. Yeah, in my experience, so like on an average basis, I feel like that is around three to four times as many employees per, you know, dollar, so to speak, of e-commerce sales. Now, you do have to adjust that a little bit, right? Because these aggregators have, you know, they have other elements of their organization, like the group within an aggregator that's doing the acquisitions and doing the due diligence, et cetera. So there's sort of more to the operation. It's not exactly apples to apples comparison to like a 
consumer brand e-commerce team. But from the research I've seen, from my experience, it's you know three to four times as many people. And I think even perhaps more interesting about that is they don't have any of the tension around alternative channels to invest in. You know, they're essentially all in on Amazon and, and maybe broader e-commerce. And so they don't have to balance decisions around adding people to the e-commerce team versus, you know, some of slower growing, you know, other sales accounts. They're going to be very focused on investing in the best tools, the best partners, and they have the capital to do that. So I think from a competitive standpoint, aggregators sort of have the advantage of, of being almost like singularly focused and they're hiring rapidly, you know, to build out their expertise. So, so I think they're already a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of like the amount of resources they're dedicating per dollar. And I think that's a, you know, a consideration for consumer brands. And I'd also, if I were the VP of e-commerce at a established consumer brand, I'd use that data point and say, look, like we've got these companies coming in capital markets, are recognizing the value of these digital cash flows. We're behind from an investment perspective in terms of resources or you know whatever the initiatives are at the given company. And it's just a great kind of benchmark or data point to say like, hey, this is like this is what an e-commerce organization, the modern day e-commerce organization is looking like, and we're behind. So that's where I encourage VPs of e-commerce to like use that data to help bolster your argument about your initiatives and the investment that you're looking for from the company. I love that. I think that that's a real take home what what you just said, which is using this information and using the playbook that these aggregators have to show what that should look like. And certainly my conversations with larger CPG brands who are scratching their heads trying to figure out things like how to be profitable in e-commerce when their whole business and manufacturing process is built around selling to national accounts. And yeah, look at those e-commerce first CPG brands who've set up the structure that way right from the beginning and are doing and are operating in this new kind of paradigm because they don't have the baggage, like you said, of working with traditional retailers. Yeah. And I think like just to bring in kind of a tangent, I think that's why like what you see happening, this is only loosely related but like with Saks and what it's done to split off its e-commerce business, like it's such a contrarian move. And so just so rowing against, you know, consensus thought that you need this seamless kind of omni-channel experience. I think that there is this advantage in a way to being singularly focused. I'm not saying that, you know, we, we want to isolate the e-commerce teams inside of consumer brands. I think we kind of did that a few years ago. And that, that wasn't necessarily optimal, but I think it's more around sort of on 50-50 decisions with e-commerce teams. If you're the senior leadership team, like 50-50 type decisions, 50-50 type funding decisions, strategies that you have to have to make, you know, maybe you side with the e-commerce team and maybe like that's, you know, sort of the to-do out of this is that you're the space is getting more mature. You're getting more sophisticated competition coming in, firm values increasingly being a function of digital expertise, consumer touch points. And so we have to invest there. So 
it's again, it's not apples to apples comparing, you know, an aggregator to a consumer brand, but I do think there's, you know, useful comparisons that that you can make internally to kind of help sell what you're trying to accomplish. Let's talk about some of the other challenges to incumbent brands that aggregators pose. There's a I guess a competitive threat around, you know, some of these brands kind of nipping at the heels of the incumbents and putting putting price pressure on them. What other threats do you see the aggregators posing? Yeah, I think, you know, like you say, if they've come in and acquired any sellers in your particular category, you know, obviously there's like very tactical competitive things, you know, advertising is going to get more expensive. They're going to fund these sellers better. So they'll have more inventory. They'll be better outside. So it'll just be a more competitive environment for you. But even if they haven't come into your category, I think there's other sort of interesting competitive considerations. And one is around talent. I think you led off with where, you know, they are rapidly hiring smart e-commerce people into these organizations and they have a great vision. You know, they talk about, we're going to be the next, we're going to be the modern, we're going to become, we're building the modern CPG company. And that's very simple and compelling for people that have been working in this space, particularly people that work inside of organizations where they face a ton of pushback on e-commerce. You know, here's an organization, an aggregator that not only do they get it, they're raising billions, billions of dollars around it. And I can, you know, go join them and we're going to do really creative, interesting things. And so I think that that's one of the biggest competitive elements of this whole thing is like this war for talent. It was already difficult to find, you know, really talented people with several years of e-commerce experience before the aggregators came. And now, now that they're here, they are, you know, effectively recruiting more individuals. And so whether you're running an agency or a executive at a a consumer brand, or heck, even an executive at some of these retailers, you have to, I think, do two things. You want to make sure your compensation is right. But I think maybe more importantly is like, what's the vision for what you're building? Because these aggregators have this vision and they've convinced you know, the most sophisticated investors in the world that this vision is worth investing in. And so you really, I think, have to craft your own vision of why would someone in e-commerce want to work here rather than at an aggregator? So I think talent, you know, is one one dimension that aggregators are changing. And by the way, I'm happy about this in some respect, because I feel like this is so cool. You know, five, 10 years ago, if you were working in e-commerce, you were sort of like the stepchild. Now, you're really highly valued. So I think, you know, just just to be clear, I think this is awesome for the individuals in e-commerce because your expertise is getting valued appropriately now. The other thing is, and, you know, look, maybe this is several years down the road. I actually don't hear aggregators themselves talking about this, but to date, they've really been focused on Amazon, other marketplaces like Walmart's marketplace. You have some aggregators coming in into the D2C world, which is interesting, like Shopify, acquiring Shopify sellers, which is really interesting, like open store is one of them. And so everything's been focused kind of on digital. But I think if you're one of these bigger aggregators, your investors are going to really require fast growth. And growth can come about certainly 
by refining operations on Amazon, maybe expanding to international markets, expanding to other digital marketplaces. But you know, the other big piece where growth can come from is in the brick and mortar world. And so you, you have, you know, depending whatever it is, I think in the US, it's 85% plus of sales are happening in brick and mortar channels. It's slower growing, of course. But if you're not in those brick and mortar channels today, that's a really substantial growth opportunity. And with aggregators, if you have, you know, let's say you have hundreds of brands that you're selling, maybe a handful of them, Walmart or Target or Best Buy would be interested in carrying more broadly, you're going to have the wherewithal and the resources to approach those retailers in a way in which those individual sellers really probably didn't have. Yep. That, that type of ability. And so I see brick and mortar expansion is sort of like the next iteration of or the next sort of growth possibility for these aggregators down the line. Again, it doesn't really matter if they're not in your category, but if they are in your category, you're you're facing real competition today digitally, but I think they're going to make the jump into brick and mortar over time. Again, they're not really talking about that, but I just feel like naturally, like logically, that's where it's going to end up going. It makes a ton of sense. The ones who figure out the e-commerce game are going to eventually get into brick and mortar. I've got a question around one advantage that incumbent brands may have, which is that the larger ones tend to own their own supply chain, have their own manufacturing facilities or have exclusive contracts and things like those. Wonder if if that's an area you see the aggregators ultimately getting into as well, or if that's really going to remain the domain of the incumbent national brands. I think it you're right in that it is an advantage for the incumbent consumer brands. I think aggregators are going to be looking at multiple elements. And I think that's one element is like, over time, are we acquiring similar types of sellers where it makes sense that we can, similar type of sellers, meaning similar type of product categories, right? where we can start like to own power parts or. of this. Yeah. Yeah, right. Where we can start to own, you know, parts of the supply chain and become a bigger force in that. And that's something that those individual sellers wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And then I think on the other side is like from a marketing an operational perspective, how do we, are there opportunities to consolidate that space? If you've raised another, you know, billion dollars, you know, do you go out and, you know, buy certain service providers or form, you know, interesting partnerships with them to help kind of consolidate that piece of the business? So you don't have all these kind of different disparate sort of operational marketing and supply chain things going on. So I think that's an advantage right now, especially on the supply chain side, like you say, for, you know, incumbents. And, you know, we'll have to see how it plays out for aggregators over time. But some have said like, well, what are they really buying? You know, if it's an undifferentiated brand, they don't own the supply chain, you know, are you just buying a seller account with, you know, and it's like, well, that's, you know, that's fair. You know, so, and by the way, like I am bullish on aggregators in the sense of like, I think they're a, new part of the ecosystem that has staying power, but I don't think all of them are going to survive. I think, I think they've got a bunch of challenges and risks ahead of them, but they know those challenges and risks, you know, none of that is going to surprise them. And so they're actively working 
to overcome those risks. But to your point, uh, with incumbent brands having, you know, the advantage, you know, one of the big advantages, many of them have robust digital businesses. They're already in brick and mortar. And so I think for them, it's the focus should be, what is our digital narrative? And this is a concept that I want to sort of do more research on and flesh out my argument. But what I mean by digital narrative is you've seen aggregators come in with a digital narrative. We're building the modern CPG brand and modern is equated to digital. And so they've raised billions of dollars on it. You've seen in the grocery side of things, which I brought up earlier, you know, these instant grocers are raising billions of dollars themselves. And, you know, they've got like 10 convenience stores in New York City, essentially. And it's like a billion dollar valuation and they just got started six months ago or whatever. But they have this digital narrative. You know, we're fundamentally changing grocery through this digital, you know, way. And so COVID has just attracted so much capital into the digital space and digital retail and D2C that I think that really is a major opportunity for senior leadership teams at established consumer brands to drive firm value. Is like, what is our digital narrative? When you look at publicly traded CPG companies, and if you were to listen in on their earnings calls, they're just now starting to talk about like some e-commerce metrics, but it'll be, you know, one sentence in a 20 page sort of transcript. You could easily foresee in a couple of years that really changing. And there's going to be new KPIs beyond sales, online, beyond digital penetration, where companies have sort of formulated like this is our future and it's the center of it is digital. So that's why I think aggregators are like one sort of outcome, you know, of COVID and capital markets interest. But there's other examples out there. And so if you're an incumbent brand, like one of your big advantages is you have a big business, you're doing e-commerce, you're doing brick and mortar, but you're missing that digital narrative piece. And I think that's going to change over the next couple of years. And that's going to help separate, you know, leaders from laggards. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, Ross. Thank you so much for joining me. Tell us more about Stratably and where people can follow your work. Yeah. So I founded Stratably uh, with the sort of the realization that digital commerce was growing 10 times faster than brick and mortar, but 90% of consumer brand organizations, the, the individuals in those companies really didn't have the resources to understand what was changing. And so Stratably is all about providing research and insights to help VPs of e-commerce inside of those companies educate their organization on these topics. And so I cover a wide range of topics that are relevant to VPs of e-commerce, whether that's Amazon or Walmart.com or how the consumer is changing, benchmarking, what good looks like, and, and those types of things. And I deliver those insights on Stratably.com on a weekly basis. And I try to make them very easy to digest. I think in my experience, the key for educating organizations is really consistent education. It's daily or weekly education. And so I try to publish stuff that's you know very easy to digest, can be shared internally, all with the goal of sort of elevating the entire company's digital IQ. So 
for your listeners that are interested, you can check out stratably.com or you can connect to me on LinkedIn where I publish a lot of content there as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Russ. Thank you, Kiri. I enjoyed it.